I'm going to, uh, my message is entitled, What Hope Looks Like, and for those who are concerned that we have a discernible uh, path here today, I've given you a little handout in there, and you just need to fill in the words. Uh, Diane was so kind to print those off for me, and we'll try to do that every week, and I would ask if you're, you're going to be speaking here at Bethel that you would do the same, just a half-page uh, uh, handout with a few words here and there that will complete statements for people. So if you have a pen or a, p- a paper, and uh, maybe this would be a good, uh, if you want to do devotions with your family and you're thinking, well, where, where do I go? Well, maybe you can utilize these outlines because you can just sit down and discuss a little bit about it. They're short enough uh, that well, that would be doable, I'm sure. So, But I want to talk this morning about what hope looks like. In um, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we read, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. And uh, in another translation, it says uh, that we are of all men most miserable. And uh, I trust this morning that uh, as we read that, we, that doesn't, that doesn't fit us. I'm, I'm believing and trusting that today. That, that doesn't fit us here. It says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men uh, the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So as we read that scripture, you know, you know, the very first thing that I'd say to help you fill that in is apart from Christ, there is no reason for an expectation of hope uh, beyond this life. And, uh, you know, as a believer, we believe that Jesus Christ is our hope. He's the hope of the world. And uh, apart from his resurrection, uh, we, we are without hope. And all men live without hope. And the Lord wants us to experience hope. You know, Christ is not only the first of our, our, first of our resurrections. You know, others had been raised back, uh, but his resurrection was the first of a kind. It was the first of a resurrection uh, which is better than all of the other resurrections because it was a resurrection that wasn't being, that, that, that wasn't a resurrection, a temporal resurrection. And uh, his resurrection really is the best uh, resurrection of all, and we are given hope because of that, that we too will experience that type of resurrection. You know, as we, I think about hope, I, I just want to draw a little, couple of little parallels here with you. Uh, I have different prints, and I can see them if I make them real big, and then there's smaller ones. I have to keep putting these things back on, but, you know, I remember as a kid there, I had a very good friend. His name was Jimmy. And Jimmy and I would um, do a lot of things together, spend a lot of time together, and we took this bike ride one time, and I've shared this story, um, and we rode, we rode these bikes out, uh, there was a railroad tracks that ran through our town, you know, I love to hear the train, I still love it, we hear trains near our home, and I hear their, their whistles and such, and I love to hear that. I mean, it just uh, reminds me of my childhood. And so uh, we rode down these tracks, and it was a hot summer day. And uh, the one thing we really didn't plan on, we planned to go far, but we didn't plan uh, to bring anything to drink or anything like that. Why would you think of that, you know? Anyhow, we drove so far, and it was so hot uh, that we got off and sat a while, and, you know, uh, we, we, we just thirsty. 
And you know, one of the dumb things that I've done, and I've done a few. How many of you have done dumb things before? Uh, I remember this uh, uh, very well. Uh, Jimmy and I decided we were going to drink out of this puddle of water. And the only problem was, would have been most people would have recognized that the dead bugs on the water were indicative that they, they succumbed in the water. And, you know, we kind of scooched them along. And the little oily film on top of the water could have probably indicated, uh, don't drink this. But we got down and drank some of that water. And then, you know, neither of us knew, but uh, we had school the next day. Neither of us were in school. Uh, that's because we were running in and out of the bathrooms and sick the whole day uh, because we drank buggy water that most people would have had the common sense not, not to drink. So, um, hey, Rob, can you come here a minute? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I got it fixed. Uh, uh, but as we, we drank that buggy water, what were we expecting would happen. I mean, we really didn't give much thought to what would happen afterward because, you know, we were just dumb kids that really didn't think about it. But, you know, I liken that to the fact that when we're trying to draw from the world hope, what are we expecting to get? You're not going to get anything better than the buggy water that I drank uh, that that was, uh, uh, you know, 40-some years ago. You know, and really when you draw, try to draw hope from the world, it's just going to make you sick. It's not, you're not going to be healthy if you look to the world for hope. And, you know, how I would describe life apart from Jesus is uh, this life and this world that we live in is a vacuum. Nothing of real life survives here. You know, there is no, no God-given hope. It's just a spiritual vacuum. It is, it, it is a temporary arrangement. You know, Paul said if we have hope in this life only, if our hope only is, is, is contained within the structure of our time here and it doesn't go beyond that, that doesn't give us a whole lot. Because all of those who have believed in Christ to be our salvation are counting on the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. Because if he's not resurrected from the dead, then we don't have any real hope. But the fact that the resurrected Christ was seen and experienced by so many, and, and the Word of God talks to us about his resurrection, we understand that, that we do have a hope beyond this life. Hope in this world is, a, is again, is not, is, is not there. The world apart from God spiritually is like it was when we read in Genesis 1. It was, it was dark and void. It was void and darkness covered the face of the deep. It was lifeless. And this life is, this existence in this world has nothing to offer us. And I want to say that very clearly. That doesn't mean that there aren't valuable life experiences that we share, relationships and things that we engage in, but I'm talking about this world that's in conflict with God. It offers us nothing. Amen? Nothing. You know, when we talk about the world, we're talking about the fallen nature that governs the world. Out of that, you will draw nothing positive. There will be nothing life-giving. You know, how many know that your old nature can't give you anything positive? 
The old man that you were, the old person that you were before Christ, really affords you nothing. It makes these bold promises that if you get this or have that or experience this, or if you go into this type of relationship, that you're going to find some real fulfillment in, in life. And that's not true. It's all a lie. You know, too often we look to the society that we live in to offer us signs of hope. We're looking for life signs, proof of life, when we're looking at the world around us. And this world around us can't offer us life. And that doesn't cause me as much grief as it would otherwise. If I, if I were living without hope and I was looking to the world and I realized that there was nothing there for me, I would be despondent. But because I know Christ and I know who I believe in and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep those things that I commit unto him against that day, I have hope. I believe that I am an ambassador of Christ and I have hope and good news to share with the world and they need that hope. I believe that. People may not respond favorably to us all the time. They may not want to hear it all the time. You know, but you understand as we live this life, we're going to rub shoulders with people who desperately need hope. You're going to. It's, it's inevitable. Unless you isolate yourself and you live an insular life, you are going to rub shoulders with people who are desperately broken and living without hope. You know, as we think about all of this, you know, I wonder... You know, there's a lot of things that I don't talk about that we've experienced over the years in ministry. A lot of things I've not shared with you, not shared with too many, and I'm not sure as to why, because I, I think they're important things. But, uh, you know, let me just say before I go there, that too often we as the church look to society to afford us signs that there's reason for hope. We look to politicians, we look to social advocates and advocacies to, to arise to show us signs of hope. You know, I always look for good indicators in society, but I understand ultimately that this world cannot afford to me what God gives me. Why would we ever think that the world is going to author us reasons for hope? Why would we ever think that the world, it, it is the position of the world to offer the church hope? You know, we live in fear of government. We live in fear of the encroachments that are being made. And they are being made. And there are laws and legislatures that really are working as feverishly as possible against the church but how many understand, you know, we do our part as good citizens, but we understand that, that the health of the church is not dependent on, the, on man. And we stop talking as though it does. You know, that somehow, you know, the world's going to inflict something upon the church that makes it impossible for us to be the church. And that is not true. It hasn't been true for 2,000 years, and it's not true today. Why would we ever think, though, that we need to look to the world to author us reason to be hopeful? Why do we look to the world to create the realities of hope? Why do we look to the world to create the realization of hope? Why would we expect that, that the world would bring uh, uh, forth what God has directly given to us? 
It's kind of like a uh, looking at a cow and expecting chocolate milk from it. Now, I would love to have one of those. Uh, how many would like to have a chocolate milk cow? But, you know, it's not going to happen. I don't know. I don't think it will. But uh, we're looking for pineapples from a blue spruce. It's not there to offer. It's not going to happen. Church, we have to understand that right off. There, there's light and there's darkness. There's life and there's death. There's truth and there's deceit. You know, there's some very defined opposites. And people say there are no such thing as opposites. That's usually because we really haven't looked at it really sincerely or we're living in fear. That if we declare there is right and there is wrong, there is truth, there is falsehood, there is life, there is death, right? There is darkness, there is light. And we're children of the light. We're ambassadors. God has called us out of darkness that we could show forth his praises, right? we got to show forth the praises of God who saves. You know, tainted wells will, will never, ever, ever, ever be a healthy source for refreshment. So if we're going to the world for refreshment, we're going to find out that we're going to be sick like I was when I drank that buggy water, only it's going to be far greater in scope. You know, we don't look to the world to help us craft the message that we need to speak. You know, God's Word is God's Word. You know, there are different ways of delivering it, different means that we can bring it forth. And as long as the platform and the foundation is is solid beneath us and it's scriptural, there are a lot of different ways to bring the truth to people. But you understand, we're not looking to the world to give us the message. Come on, church. If you came to church to hear something that's more like the world you live in, then you've come to the wrong place today. Because when this church is no longer peculiar, distinct, it is nothing. Because there's something different here. There's something different in a community of believers. It's not that we are sinlessly perfect in all that we do, but what it is is we are positioned in Christ, and we are people of hope. We are people of light. We are people of redemption. You know, we we have to share that with people, that there is the hope of redemption. You know, I've had some really great experiences in my life just in, in, in uh, in, in recent time. I'm trying to make that go away. Go away. It didn't go anywhere. But anyhow, I'm going to share something with you that's very personal to me, and I'm not here to brag. And we are, you know, first, secondly, where does hope come from? Uh, it's, now it comes from Christ is risen from the dead. You know, that's where our hope comes from, the resurrection of Christ. I need to either put them on or leave them on. Um, before Christ, uh, but now Christ is risen from the dead. That's the hope of the church, folks. That is the hope of the church. Because if Jesus Christ is like every other person who's lived and died and made great professions only to, to decay in the grave, we, we have no hope. There's no credibility to the message that we share. But the word, we know that Christ is risen. You know, the resurrection of Christ completely changes the narrative. When you know that Christ is alive, it changes the way we talk. It changes the way we live. 
People who say, oh, well, you're, yeah, we don't live. I'm going to tell you something. If we're not living a transformed and be a transformative life, then we need to jump back into this whole thing from the beginning and get on our faces before the Lord. Because these are not subtle changes, and they're not indifferent. You know, when he calls you out of darkness into light, that's a pretty profound change. When he calls us out of death and into life, that's, that's huge. How many remember what life was like when you were living in spiritual death? When you were living in darkness, how many remember that that did precede the time that you came to the Lord? And there could, you could have been a good, good person or a good sinner, or you could have been a bad sinner, but you were still living in the dark. You know, I, I think about, um, this today, you know, sometimes it used to be when, when celebrities would get saved, and, and I'm sure it still happens, we rush them into the searing lights of Christian celebrity, and they tend to falter, not because they, 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 they have not really had a true experience, but unfortunately, their Christian handlers focus more on their celebrity appeal than upon their growth in Christ. Just as, you know, we have to invest in any non-celebrity person who, who comes to the Lord. Unfortunately, for those who are looking for a hybrid mix of the world and the faith to advance the hope that is in the church, I'm going to tell you, there's nothing that this world, and I'm talking about the fallen nature of this world, there is nothing in it that will make the church better. There's nothing in this fallen world that is going to make you a stronger believer. Believe me, right? There's nothing this world can give you, but there's a whole lot that it would seek to take away from you. It wants to take away your hope, wants to take away your joy, wants to take away your peace. But how many say, I'm not letting that happen. I'm staying fixed upon the foundation of Christ. I'm staying centered. He lives in me and I live in him. And the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So I'm choosing to remain focused in Christ, centered in Christ. I'm going to remain as one of those the branches that grow forth out of the vine ship of Christ. You know, this morning... I wonder if we spend an inordinate amount of time studying everything around us. And, you know, I do understand that if you're going to minister to people effectively in their culture or in their group, you do need to be, you have to have some working knowledge of where you're going and what you're doing and some, but if all we're doing is studying the world to, to determine the message that we share and we avoid calling people to repentance in Christ, we've missed it. You know, you understand it's still by faith, by grace, by faith. You know, I hear a lot of crazy things that people say, but I'm going to tell you, you're still saved by grace through faith. It requires a repentance. How many know repentance is required? You know, the message was the message of John the Baptist. It was the message of the early church, repent and be baptized. I always say to people, if you think baptism, if you think baptism is, is going to save you and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, then all you're getting is wet. That's it. You're not, that, that water will not change you. That water is not going to change you. 
People say, well, I got saved and I got baptized uh, and, and I was saved. No, you got saved and then you were baptized. It is repentance and faith in Christ that brings us into that relationship. And that is the good news of the gospel. We think calling people to repentance is a bad message. Well, then you better take it up with the Lord then. Because that message, if it's shared as a condescending, legalistic, beat you over the head kind of thing, I understand how, how, how bad that can be. But you know, when we walk in the grace of God, we walk in the truth, we realize that God wants the whole world to know this hope. God doesn't want anyone to die and to go to hell. How many got that? God doesn't want anyone to die lost. And how many of you don't want anyone in your life to die without knowing Christ as Savior and Lord? So when you're sitting around the table, and it's something, it's a discipline because our tongues kind of get out. How many have uh, tongue problems? It's easy to jump in on the negative uh, narratives and just add more fuel to the fire. Just telling everyone all the time how bad it is and how, you know, we're all going down. There's no hope. I want to tell you that message is just going to put more weight around people's necks. They need to know who the answer is. Not just who the, what the problem is, but who is the answer? Who is your answer today? Who is your hope? Who is your life? You know, um, it's not about whose team benefits. You know, there's so much competition that takes place between churches and organizations and denominations, people within the church. None of this is for our glory, right? They do it for him. And I'm going to share these things because they're things that really have changed my life more than anything else has ever, ever impacted me. More so than anything else in my whole life. And just, uh, I preface that by saying, yeah, we study culture because I had a very good friend. He's still my friend. At least I think he is. Uh, he would take me fly fishing. And he was so invested in me becoming a fly fisherman, which I still, after all these years, have not done. He bought me waders. He bought me a fly rod, I mean brand new fly rod, not brand new uh, reel, the line. He got me one of the jackets, you know, the real fisherman's jackets you hang things off of and all that. And not only that, that the, the, the thing that would have encouraged me more than anything to be a fly fisherman is he always brought Dunkin' Donuts. That was probably the best part of the whole trip. We'd go up to Potter County. And we'd go to catch and release, and we'd fly fish up there. And he was an expert at studying the streams. And he had all these lures that he had made that mimicked the things that fish were feeding off of in the water. And he would show you, this is what they're feeding off at this time of the year. This is what they're feeding on. And this time, this is what they have here. And you know, something is very good. But here's the thing. He didn't just make lures to sit and look how pretty they were. He actually threw them in. And, you know, he made them and spent time. Why? So he could catch fish. You know, he wasn't just amazed at how good he was at making things that lived in the water that could potentially catch fish. He actually threw them in the line. He put them on my line, and we threw them in together, and the fish would eat them up. You know, as you and I think about this today, 
I reflect, and these are things that I've reflected on, of giving people hope. And I'm going to say this, and before I do, the empty tomb uh, um, represents our resurrection. Acts 20, 21, uh, 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 we're told, I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's in the Bible. You got it? He says, uh, he says I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says. So, none of this, and I want you to hear this, none of this am I sharing to boast, because we have nothing to boast of. It all gets laid at the feet of Jesus. The only thing we can boast of is the grace of God in our lives. But these are things that I was reflecting upon over the years. I am always drawn, I, I, can, I don't know, Robin, she knows she's sitting there, she's straight laced. She was always the goody two-shoe. When I was bad, she was good. She gave me a licking and said, don't do it again. But anyhow, I can tell you, uh, she's sitting there, so if I was lying to you, you'd call me out on it, wouldn't you? Uh, You'd say on the ride home, you know that's not true. Well, here we go. Just going to say, you know, God has called us to be ambassadors of hope, and I've always formed relationships with unlikely people. I don't know why. You know, right, Rob? Unlikely people. I'm talking about bikers, drug addicts. Uh, you, you may or may not believe bikers, drug addicts, sex offenders. People who have been violent toward other people. I have had opportunities with people that you will never know anything about. You will never know anything other than what I'm telling you right here. And, and I'm not talking about a one-time little sit down and let's chat together. I'm talking about time to build relationship and to invest in people. When we, when we moved from Altoona, the last person on that truck helping us to unload was a biker. I'm not a biker. His name was Doug. And he stood there with his long hair and his jacket, and he seemed so lost because we were moving. And I wanted him to know, Doug, this is, this is, Jesus has started something in your life. This is a great chapter for you. He was the last one to stay there and help. And you know, he came to our home, had dinner with us, and we had a nice dinner one evening, and he and a couple other people had come over to the house. We were trying to integrate Doug into the, into the church, so we tried to find out any biker types that we had. We didn't have any. So Robin suited up in her leather and, uh, all of that, come walking out, and, uh, but anyhow, he sat there at the table. That's not true. Okay, see, anyhow, I'll just say, we were sitting at the table, and uh, everybody starts talking about their pets. Yeah, and and, uh, so, this is how, this is the relationship that we were able to form. So, Doug, he was very dry. He said, yeah, he said, "I, I I have, I had two snakes. He said, one of them died. They were, they were big, fat things, you know. And, you know, I don't know how to relate to people who like snakes. I mean, I think they're weird. I thought Doug was weird, but I loved him. How many of you know you can think someone's weird and still love them? 
So Doug says, my snake died. I didn't know what to say, so I just said, so did you eat it? Dead silence around the table. Nobody said a word. They just, other than she looked at me, you know, the look you get when you've really stepped over the line. And he said, no, I buried it. (laughs) I appreciated that he felt like he needed to answer that, but I'm going to tell you the things that have shaped my life. Uh, You know, I'm not, a lot of what happens in a pastor's life doesn't happen on Sundays. This is a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Week after week, I spent Wednesdays in the Allegheny County Jail. Not, not, I didn't have a service with anybody, but I was there because there was a young man who was a, who had, uh, was a drunk driver and, and, uh, he killed somebody. So every Wednesday, I'd make the trip to, and I'm just saying because God said, you're gonna do this, you're gonna stick by this young man because he needs hope. He's broken. He's vilified because he killed a nine-year-old little girl, but he still needs grace. He still needs to know that God cares for him. So I, I committed that every Wednesday I would go from Waynesburg to Pittsburgh and go to visit with him. And we'd have, you know, like a half hour or whatever it was, you'd go into the little glass room and talk through the windows uh, with each other. And God said, you're going to build, you're going to build a relationship with him. You know, honestly, I've spent time, prolonged periods of time, and I, you know, you, this makes people feel a little uneasy, but I'm going to tell you, I spent a, I spent a, a good amount of time with people who uh, are sex offenders. You say, well, now those are the scum of the earth, and there's no hope for them, and they're damned to hell. And, you know, you know, as much as I would probably say that maybe if I had, it had touched my life personally, I still understand that Jesus wants to save everybody, right? How many believe that today? What am I going to say to this man who I said, there's no hope for you? He came to me. You know, he went with me on visitation, not with young kids or anything like that, with senior saints and adults. And, you know, there was a lot of time we spent in the car talking about things that I believe God had given us the opportunity to talk about and to pray with. And his name was Paul. Paul's dead now. Uh, he's my age. He was killed in an accident. But, you know, there were a lot of hours that were spent there. And I know there were people who said, why do you spend time with him? Why would I spend time with anyone if I'm truly following the call of God? God calls us to go wherever he leads. reason I'm saying this to you today is Paul needed hope. He didn't need somebody else to tell him it was over for him, that his life was a waste, that he had ruined other lives. And now, you know, this other young man who had been involved in the, in the automobile accident, he was, he was in prison for seven years and, uh, he, he was a church kid, grew up in church, very, very, he got, got an electrician's job in Pittsburgh and he, you know, after work they would go drink and he went and, and, and eat and he got too much to drink, got in his car and head on into another vehicle. And so that journey was his journey, but God said, you're going to be part of that journey. So I got familiar with the Allegheny County Prison, and it's not like county prisons out in the country. Or, you know, this, this is downtown Pittsburgh, uh, right downtown Pittsburgh. And uh, 
You know, we spend a lot of time looking at each other and talking to each other between the glass. Then he moved to Camp Hill. Uh, He was transitioned there before his sentencing in Mercer County Prison where he spent the balance of his time. And God said, you're going to connect with him. You know, I I think about all of the years that God brought people into our lives who were broken and needed help and hope. I visited, uh, I can't even remember the name of it, a children's home uh, for uh, troubled teens, you know, uh, routinely to visit with a young, uh, young girl whose life was really messed up and, and uh, God said, you're going to connect with this. And I always went with somebody else. So we always had a couple of us go and just to connect and to make an investment of hope. You see, these are people who may not have been interested in a Sunday morning service. And they wouldn't be until they had some reason to want to be. I spent time, many many hours with a man who had chased his wife through the woods with a loaded shotgun. And my family said, what are you doing? I said, I got in a truck, rode with a man for six hours and listened to him uh, share his issues and his problems. And uh, God said, I want you to listen to him and I want you to connect with him because he needs hope. Many hours in homes spent in the ward of Lancaster. Many hours. I don't know if you're familiar with the ward in, or Lancaster. Did I say Pittsburgh? Ward in Lancaster. A lot of people living broken lives there, you know. And we'd go and uh, invest in families and children's lives and their families where kids would come to church on the bus and they'd be dirty. And they... It would be hungry, right? And you go to the home and you'd make welfare checks on the family just to see what the needs were. And you'd often go in and find the refrigerators empty and the, full of beer. And God said they need hope. So be an ambassador of hope to these people. Had two little boys, uh, Hispanic boys that came to church, and I don't know if their names could have been any more ironic, or at least one of them. They were named Angel and Angelo. Angel. (laughs) Yeah. And these little boys uh, had no father figure in their lives, and their mom was doing the best she could to raise him, and and God said, you're going to build a relationship with, the, with these kids and their family. And I, part of that relationship was going to the door, knocking on the door, because I had to take the kids out of church one Sunday because they were, you know, they were you know, threatening to kill other kids. That's never good. And I, I took them home, and I said, you have to invest more in these kids. And until you make more of an investment in help training them and helping them, uh, unfortunately for them, they can't come. And I said, I want them to come, but now it's on you as a mother to invest what you can to help shape them. There, I had a relationship with a, and understand when I say that, you, you do understand, right? I had a relationship with a, a, a man who uh, had sold his body for drugs over the course of a few years. And when I, when I came to the church, 
His mother had come to me and said, my son is really desperately in a bad place. Would you, would you reach out to him and build a relationship with him? You know, we say what all pastors say. Yeah. And I didn't realize exactly what I said, just said yeah to. But then as we began to walk forward and we began to walk into this thing, I saw how messed up and troubled it was. And Robin can tell you this for a fact. Um, it, it was odd because, you know, we had gotten so involved with, with him that when I got married, I would not have had him in my wedding. He was in my wedding party, not because of what he had done, but because we, you know, we didn't have that kind of friendship, you know, and, uh, people will often say, they'll look and go, I know this one, I know this one, who's he? And, you know, there's a story there. An investment that God called us to make. And I got to tell you, it's not always easy because there were times when, you know, then I I wanted to wring his neck because he'd come knocking at my door, looking in my windows to see if I was there. And sometimes I was actually. I lived in an efficiency apartment and it doesn't afford you a whole lot of places to hide. Have you ever hidden from anybody? You hear this? Come on, anybody. Make me feel better. I don't care. How many, how many of you, and you look out and go, oh, I'm not answering that one. I remember it, he came knocking at the door because it was almost an everyday thing. And there was just, it just got to the point where, and I, and I actually got in the shower. And unfortunately, there's a window. Why would anybody put that window up there? And I had to crouch down and I was hiding. Hey, Rick, Pastor Rick, you in there? He slept on my couch. I mean, he, he ate with me. Uh, we, you know, and you know, all of these things. That he wasn't the kind of person that I would normally have invested my time with, but God said he needs hope. And you know, the thing is, we were at home one night, and the phone rang about 1.30 in the morning, and it was the Lancaster Police Department. You know... <laughs> I knew they were going to catch up with me. But anyhow, I'm at home, and yes, this is the Lancaster, whoever it was, police department. He said, is your name Richard Rittenauer? And I said, yes, it is. And I said to Robin, I'm going away. But uh, he said, uh, we have your son here. I'm 24 years old, right? Jonathan hadn't been born yet. He said, your son's here. And I said, I, I said, I, I don't have a son. I said, I don't have a son. I'm not sure what you're talking about. And then the wheels started turning. And I, and I kind of felt like he might be talking about a young man that we've worked with in our church. At this point, he was probably 20 years old, and he was a big, tall, he was schizophrenic. And he would, you know, we would fish together, I'd do things with him, and he was fine uh, unless his medication wasn't good. And then he would become violent. And uh, I, so I thought, I said, is he a tall fella? Does he have kind of a ruddy red complexion? Yes. And I told him, I said, I know, I know, I know who he is. And he says, well, he's here, and he says, you're his father, and he wants you, wants to know if you can come get him. Well, he didn't, 
his family dynamic was so messed up. It was so broken down. His mother was one of the most loving people you'd ever meet. Uh, she was so gracious and kind, and she died with leukemia. And his father was largely detached and disconnected uh, from the kids. And, and so, you know, Larry is his first name, and Larry... Um, Larry showed up at our house one morning. If you know the door, another one of these knocks on the door. Knock on the door, and it was uh, it was about four thirty-five in the morning. It was a Sunday morning, and uh, I I did what I probably most men wouldn't do. I said, "Robin, can you go get that?" She goes out. You know, she's so good. She goes out and comes back in, and before she can say anything, there's Larry standing over me in my bed, looking down. And we had this mangy dog named Rosie, and he looks at the dog, and he looks at me, and he says, why is that dog looking at me? And I said, because you're here. And so I took him out in the living room, and we sat down. He had been missing for a number of days. And he showed up at our house, and uh, he had a newspaper in his hand, and he threw the newspaper at me and said, do you see that? And I was afraid that he had done something really bad. And, uh, but I didn't want him to, to do something really bad to me. So when I read it, I said, yeah, I see that. I see that. I do. I see that. I didn't know what I was supposed to see. But, and he said, it's you and me against the world. I was glad it was... You know, we were together, and it wasn't him against me. So I said, well, that, that's good. That's real good. So we got ready for church. There's a long story there. We fed him. We got ready for church, held on to him. We called his mom and said, uh, your son's here. And uh, I said, we'll, we'll bring him to, into church when we get there. But I wouldn't let him go before we left because I didn't want him to encounter anybody else. We get to the church. His mom hadn't come yet. And uh, so as we arrived at the church, uh, we got on the, uh, I said, his mom wasn't there. Robin was there. And I thought, well, I'm not going to leave her with him. So I, I said, Larry, you're going to ride the van with me because I drove the church van that morning. And I said, you can ride with me. And I said, the one thing that I want you to do is not to say anything to anybody. I want you to sit in the co-pilot seat, and I don't want you to say anything. Because he was saying some crazy things. So we start driving down the road, and he looks at me, and he says, Pastor Rick, he said, do you know who the Antichrist is? I said, no. And he said, it's you. How would you like to be the Antichrist? I mean, that morning I found it out. I knew then that, 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 and he said, and I am the false prophet. And I said, well, Larry, I would really appreciate that you not tell anyone that. Not on this van today. Don't tell anybody that. So we got him back to church. It was a long story, but Larry needed love. He needed hope. See, that's why to me, the better sermons are the ones you live, not the ones you do this with. Because doing this isn't always much of anything. It's just us talking. I'm not saying the word isn't anointed and the word's not powerful, but this, this, these are the things that come in handy and the feet and getting out there because the world needs to see hope. 
Well, you know, we tell them they need Jesus. Well, why do they need Jesus? Show them why they need Jesus. Show them the benefit of knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Speak as a Christian. Live as a Christian, right? doesn't mean we're perfect. 